This week on the Backtable Podcast. We were asked to put a filter in somebody and the patient came down and the patient actually had a filter in them. <laughs> you know, you're like, what, what, is, what is it? And they had a filter placed in another hospital, right? It was a non-Kaiser facility. But it's like, there's patients who had filters that, you know, weren't in our system. This out of sight, out of mind thing is definitely a, an issue. It's easy enough for us to put these things in, but it takes a little more work to do the right thing and to follow these up and get them out. And I mean, not every filter needs to come out, but for the ones that are that we should be doing, we should get, get them out when we can. And earlier is better. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Just let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our medical community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Protect your most valuable asset the skill and ability to practice your medical specialty. One out of three individuals become disabled during their career. Be prepared by establishing a specialty-specific disability insurance policy from the experts at DI4MDs. They represent all the major disability insurance companies that provide individual policies for physicians. Special discounts are available for all physicians, residents, and the military. Whether you have no coverage or to compare and improve your current coverage, or take advantage of the new higher monthly benefit, contact them today at www.di4mds.com. Again, that's www.di4mds.com or call them at 888-934-4637. Again, that's 888-934-4637. So quick announcement, we are excited about our new project, which allows us to bring you, our audience, Continuing Medical Education, or CME as we call it. After much research, we've got it set up so you guys can receive CME from listening to Backtable Podcast. Right now it's free, probably won't be free forever, but get it while you can. Check out the show notes to this episode or episodes that we've recently done and look for the CME button or the CME link. Follow the instructions and it should be pretty easy. I'm excited to introduce our guest today. We have Dr. Stephen Wong. Dr. Wong is an interventional radiologist based out of Santa Clara, California. And one of Dr. Wong's clinical interests, which we'll be discussing today, is IVC filters and filter retrieval. We did a podcast with Bob uh, Ryu in 2017 with Barraza hosting um, about hashtag filter out. Today, we're going to take another look at that topic. It's a great topic. And one of the things that we're going to be talking specifically about is how to build a successful filter retrieval program, which Stephen's going to help us with. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Big fan of the podcast. As you mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm an interventional radiologist at Kaiser Permanente in Santa Clara, California, Northern California. I grew up in Kentucky, actually went to medical school at Duke despite torn basketball allegiances and went on to do residency at Stanford and then fellowship at Daughter Interventional Institute in Oregon. I took my first job out of fellowship at Kaiser Permanente. I've been there for the last uh, 16 years and have been actively involved with basic science research and filter medical device flow modeling, as well as clinical research and quality research, particularly regarding IVC filters. So man, took your first job out of fellowship and stuck with Kaiser. They must be doing something right. You know, the benefits are hard to turn down, to be honest with you. All right, good. I like that. I mean, it's always it's always nice to hear about people taking their first job out of fellowship and sticking with it. I'm, I'm in the same boat. 
So tell us about your practice. I'm sure you do more than just like filter retrievals and filter placement. What does the IR practice look like at uh, Santa Clara? You know, we're sort of a full service IR practice. We do a fair amount of oncologic work, not doing a whole lot of peripheral vascular disease anymore. We used to do that. That's sort of gone away, but we do a lot, a fair amount of oncologic work, some venous work and just sort of full service IR. So biliary GU work and fair amount of ablations too. Yeah. That's great. So with regards to filters, are the interventional radiologists the only service that's putting in filters or is it also done by trauma, vascular surgery, kind of a hodgepodge? That's a really good question and certainly very pertinent to any sort of retrieval program. So in general, in Northern California within Kaiser, almost all filters are placed by interventional radiology. There are a few exceptions and particularly those are cases where it may be placed in the OR at the same time of, of some other procedure by their vascular or cardiology, but in general, they're all placed by IR. Okay. I can just say from where I did fellowship training, we were exclusively putting them in. I was at Georgetown for fellowship. And I think I can say that, you know, 95 plus percent of the filters were being placed by IR. And then I got to my practice here in New Orleans and probably placed 10 filters in like seven years. Cardiology puts them all in here. And wow. Yeah, it's just very different, different practice patterns. So, all right. So let's launch in and talk about like kind of IVC filters broadly. And one of the things I was going to start with are the SIR guidelines and the ACCP guidelines. And I'll just kind of like let you take it from there, Stephen. Yeah. So traditionally there's been, I mean, part of the issue with filters and sort of what I would term over usage of filters in the U.S. has, you know, one of the main problems has been just a lack of consensus on guidelines. And in the past, there was East, you know, trauma surgery guidelines from, I believe, like 2008, even actually predating 2008. But those guidelines were never really updated. And, you know, SIR had very different guidelines than perhaps what the American College of Chest Physicians or the ACCP did. And, you know, thankfully, in the last couple of years, there was a publication in JVIR, and I, I would really encourage all you know subscribers to take a look at this. It was published in 2020, and it's a joint consensus collaborative effort among the American College of Chest Physicians, the American College of Cardiology, one of the major trauma societies, the American Heart Association, SIR, Society of Vascular Surgery, and the Society of Vascular Medicine. And this was a, a joint effort. I believe it was headed by John Kaufman, who was one of my research mentors at Daughter. And they do an evidence-based evaluation for, for indications for filters. And this is pretty much, in my mind, has changed a lot of things if people are following the appropriate guidelines. And basically, the main indication for filter placement is a patient with acute PE or DVT and a contraindication to anticoagulation. And everything beyond that sort of prophylactic filters, not really recommended. So what about, I mean, one of the things I feel like that comes up and that's in the uh, guidelines is recommending an IVC filter placement in a patient who is on anticoagulation and then has a new documented PE or DVT while on appropriate anticoagulation. Like, I feel like that referral comes in not infrequently. Yeah. So in the past, prior guidelines at least with an SR guidelines, that was a, a potential recommendation for a filter placement. Now with the new consensus guidelines, that is not recommended. So, you know, if a patient is on anticoagulation and has a recurrent PE or DVT, then they're recommending, you know, really 
probably in that situation, more information and in, in trying to optimize your anticoagulation. Usually in this situation, if you, if you have a hematology consult, that's probably worth looking at. There are many options now on the anticoagulation side. I just listened to Carol's podcast the other day. It was great about, I think it was Dr. Bertini or. I think it's Fred Bertino. Okay. Bertino. Yeah. It was a really great podcast. And instead of just, you know, the old, you know, jerk reflexes to say, okay, well, well, let's just put a filter in this patient. You know, we really need to give pause now and, and try to determine whether the anticoagulation can be further optimized. And so let me ask you this, like how it works at your facility. So are you getting a fair number of consults where you come in for the IVC filter consult and you're saying, actually, let's take a pause here and, you know, filters not indicated? Absolutely. Okay. And, and that's, I think that's the, the way we, all of IR has been moving is, and instead of getting your, your fast food order line of what you want for, for a procedure, then we're asking for them to consult us. And then we're looking over the chart. We're leaving our consult recommendations. And in many cases we are saying, you know, this does not meet guidelines. This is not, you know, appropriate request for a filter. So definitely. And so after that, like that, that's my question. So after that, do you then make recommendations? Cause you're saying, okay, there's no filters indicated. Do you go on further to say, hey, maybe a, a hematology consult is appropriate or, hey, maybe this is, I don't know, a better anticoagulation regimen? Like what, what's the next step? Or, or do they just kind of take you carte blanche and say, okay, yeah, they said no filter, no filter. Sounds good. I think a lot of that depends on who's you know, making the request and what service is making the request. We actually, at my facility, we have a, a really good relationship with our hematologist. They've actually collaborated with us on setting up our filter clinic and also you know, working with us actually in some of our research and publications. And so we have a really great relationship with them. And oftentimes if I'm concerned at all, I, you know, when I'm giving my consult to HBS, you know, the hospital service or to the, um, critical care folks, I'll actually loop in hematology with me if I have any questions or concerns. That's great. So you've probably been a couple different facilities or maybe even within Kaiser. Where are people who are placing filters kind of getting it wrong as far as potentially overutilization of filters like where do where do you see as like the misstep or the that they're just maybe putting in one too many filters do you know what i mean yeah for sure you know i think this is a question that's definitely going to be facility specific one of the projects we did was i actually went to every kaiser ir facility in northern california and actually gave a grand rounds about evidence-based you know indications for filters and also complications of long-term filters and the need for follow-up. I think it's actually in everyone's best interest if IR takes sort of the responsibility here. At Kaiser, we kind of looked at it as a low-level, mid-level, and high-hanging fruit analogy. And the low-level fruit, which is the vast majority of, of what can be sort of corrected easily, is unnecessary filter placements. And I think giving that educational talk in a grand rounds format, you know, where people are offered CME is, you know, really important. And, and what you address are the group of folks who may not be familiar with the efficacy data and safety data on filters. And when you reach these people, you'll see a significant reduction in inappropriate filter requests. And we saw, you know, region wide about a 20% reduction in filters after we gave grand rounds. And in our paper, you can see that the reduction was proportional to grand rounds attendance at each facility. <laughs> so people, if they didn't attend grand rounds, they didn't see much of a change. And then, you know, when we had like 60% attendance by physicians at that grand rounds, there was a massive reduction in filter placements. 
Well, that's excellent. So my next question is, are the filters that we placing, are they working? Are they doing the job that we want them to do? I know the answer is always more complex, but one of the things that we're kind of missing is the risk benefit analysis to filters. You know, this is the million dollar question. And the truth is there's not really good data on this. And if you look at the consensus guidelines that SIR just put out along with the other societies, the level of evidence for most of these things is not very good. But as far as what are the outcomes that we should be looking at? Mortality? Is there a mortality benefit? If you're really looking at the level one evidence, you're looking at pre-pick one and pre-pick two, right? So these are papers that were published. Pre-pick one was published in 1998 and 2005. And then pre-pick two was published in 2015. And both of these studies involved 400 patients, 200 patients in each arm, filter or no filter, but all patients were anticoagulated. And there's really no mortality benefit with any of those studies with filter placements. Now, in pre-pick one, you know, with the short-term data, this study looked at 12 days, two years, and eight-year data. We did see a statistically significant reduction in PE in the filter group at 12 days with pre-pick one. You know, it was like 1% versus 4.8%. Now, that was not seen at two years. And at eight years, there was a similar reduction in PE, but that sort of evidence was really tainted by the fact that the people who didn't get a filter were usually taken off anticoagulation in that eight-year period. you got a group of people who have already proven themselves to have, you know, VTE, and some got a filter, but all those filters are permanent filters in pre-PIC-1. And so, you know, those patients are oftentimes long-term anticoagulated. So it's not really a fair comparison as far as PE data at eight years. More importantly, in, in 2015, pre-PIC-2 was published, and this was, this was sponsored by the French government. And, you know, this was all using one retrievable device, which we don't use a whole lot in the U.S., called the ALN filter. One interesting, important thing to note about pre-PIC-2 versus pre-PIC-1 was that pre-PIC-1, the inclusion criteria was mainly acute PE or DVT, and then pre-PIC-2 was acute PE and approximal DVT. So this is a, a bit of a more at-risk population, if you think about it, in pre-PIC-2, because these people already had a symptomatic PE, and on top of that, now you got a proximal DVT, sort of a, a bullet that's gone and a bullet that's potentially in the chamber. And in that group, in pre-PIC-2, there was no reduction in PE at three months or six months and no, no change in mortality. So, you know, this begs the question, well, the million-dollar question you asked, which is, does it really help? And on a mortality standpoint, we haven't seen it in these two studies. They're not huge studies, right? 400 patients isn't huge. But basically what pre-PIC2 showed was that if you can be on anticoagulation, putting a filter in really isn't going to help you. And that's why these consensus guidelines have, have shifted. And, you know, now as far as the question of, well, if you can't be on anticoagulation, does the filter help you? And that data is not really clear or well done. You know, we have population studies. There's a lot of large population studies, mega data studies out there that some suggest it might help, some suggest it wouldn't. I, I look at these studies and from a critical standpoint, it's very difficult to study mortality data with PEs. And the main reason for that is because there's this, what we call immortal time bias. So I think we can all agree that we've seen patients, all of us in IR have seen patients get a, a massive PE and rapidly deteriorate and die, right? I mean, the question is, if you're putting filters in these patients and not putting them in them, 
there's an automatic bias because the people who got the filters didn't rapidly die, right? So when you look at retrospective, massive, big data, there's already a selection bias because the people who got the filters were stable enough to make it done to IR. Okay, fair. So the answer to whether or not filters work, it's just, we don't have the data right now. So what's the study that needs to get done? Or is there a study even in the pipeline that potentially will get done? Stephen, are you about to do the study? Well, the million dollar study is the study that looks at these patients who can't be anticoagulated in my mind. I mean, I think the data for pre-pick one and pre-pick, or at least particularly in pre-pick two, is that we're not really, you know, if there is a mortality benefit, it's a very small one. We haven't seen it yet in these, in these numbers. Now, as far as what the million dollar study is, the million dollar study is we need to do the study in patients who can't be anticoagulated and to do a prospective randomized study in that, in my estimation, at least in the U.S., that's going to be a very hard IRB cell. Right, right. All right. Well, so there's the other half of the analysis. So it, potential benefit, small to possibly unknown. But what are the risk of placing filters? I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that filters are utilized is that there was a perception that it's like, who cares? You put in a filter. And then now we have retrievable filters. So like, who cares? Put in a filter and then I'll just take it out whenever we don't need it. Right. What's the problem? It's retrievable. And I think that's been part of the trap that everyone fell into. And I mean, let's be honest, putting a filter in for an IR is a, is a very easy procedure. It's a simple procedure. doesn't take much time. I mean, you can do it from any of a number of vascular access approaches. But the problem is, is that everyone did exactly that, which was, hey, look, they're retrievable. Let's just put them in then. You know, big deal. But I think what, what, what everyone realized at some point was, is that, yeah, everyone's putting them in, but very few people are getting them out. I mean, it, there, was a, there was a study that looked at the, the Medicare population and it was like less than 5% ever came out. And I think as time went on, we started to realize, you know, the longer you leave these things in, the bigger the issues that can come up. And there's a lot of studies that go out there and look at filter complications. And I think that the data and the filter complication side is also very, very muddy because, I mean, let's be honest, if you really want to look at filter complications, you kind of have to have sort of gold standard imaging to really see them. And for a lot of these patients, they don't get the follow-up. So in my mind, the gold standard for looking at complications for filters is a, is a contrast enhanced CT. And, you know, at Kaiser, we, we did a study a number of years ago where we combined the Northern California and Southern California data, and we pulled this mega data and tried to identify all patients that had filters that had been in for longer than five years that had a contrast enhanced CT. And, you know, out of a hundred, we basically pulled up a hundred patients that we had this data on and then went through and looked at time points. A lot of these were cancer follow-ups. Some of them were just ED admissions. Very few actually came in with an indication that there was something wrong with their filter as a reason, like, like leg swelling or something like that. But when we looked at the, the data, it was, you know, to me, it was, there were some pretty surprising findings, right? So if a filter had been in for longer than five years, we had a risk of partial or complete cable thrombosis at about 13%. When we looked at perforation rates. So we saw a big difference between permanent devices and retrievable devices. And I, I think most of us mainly all place retrievables now. These conical retrieval devices actually do increase the distance of perforation from the IVC the longer they stay in place. And, you know, at five years, we basically saw that nearly 70% of these filters had perforated outside of the cava and involving some sort of retroperitoneal structure either in contact with or in a retroperitoneal structure. So like duodenum, adrenal gland, pancreas, kidney, or they had gotten an ingrained into a vertebral body. 
whether or not these are clinically significant, I'd say the vast majority are not, but there definitely were some. There are definitely are some that can be clinically significant. But I think it's worth noting that even if you take out the perforation, which, you know, some people will say, well, you know, a lot of these are asymptomatic, but, you know, cable thrombosis at 13%, I guess I think it's good to shed light on that potentially the risk benefit analysis for retrievable IVC filter placement is not as benign a procedure as we anticipate it. And not only is it not as benign as we think it is, but it's also maybe not as helpful as we potentially think it is. You're saying that the retrieval process isn't as helpful as it might be? Is that what you're saying? No, I think the retrieval process is great. I was saying like the, if you place a, a filter, it's not doing, maybe not doing as good a job as you think it's doing. And then potentially like having a filter in place for a prolonged period of time is doing, you know, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. It's probably causing more damage than really than what is on your radar. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, what sort of spurred me to, to really push this retreat. I mean, two things made me really want to push developing a really good retrieval program. And, and one was that there was a, a couple of patients that actually we were asked to put a filter in somebody. This was a long time ago and the patient came down and the patient actually had a filter in them. <laughs> you know, you're like, what, what is, what is it? And they had a filter placed in another hospital, right? It was a non-Kaiser facility. But it's like, there's patients who had filters that, you know, weren't in our system. And I'm looking, I'm looking at them like, he's already got a filter in them. Like this out of sight, out of mind thing is definitely a, an issue. And then the other thing was, one of the things you alluded to is that there were a couple of times where we were asked to, you know, the things that really sort of inspired me to do this. One was that I had a couple of patients come back and we were bringing them back for retrieval and, you know, they had complete cable thrombosis and... I was like, this is, you know, we got to, there's got to be a better way of, of getting these patients back early because the longer these filters stay in place, the more problems it can cause. And I think all of us can agree. I think anyone who says that they've never had a difficult filter retrieval, I mean, I, I think most interventionists will agree. Yeah, they're either super easy or at some point everyone, you know, everyone gets a little bit uptight and then Angie's sweet thinking, you know, how hard can I pull? What's going to happen here? And it's absolutely true that the sooner you get these things out, it's way easier than dealing with it when it's been in a long or too long. So that's a nice segue into talking about when is it an easy procedure and at what time do you cross some threshold to where, all right, need to put on my adult diapers and get ready for like a big process. Because like you said, there's the easy filter retrievals and there's the not easy ones. And sometimes there's a little bit of between, but is there a time that you've found in either the data or anecdotally where these cross over that threshold? So if you look at, you know, Bob Smouse wrote some articles early on in the, in the tulip data, the cook tulip data, and there was a inflection point around 12 weeks. And after filter has been in longer than 12 weeks, it can become a bit more challenging to get out. And I think that has to do with the endothelialization of the filter struts. And part of that is also dependent on what filter you're talking about. I think certain filters are harder to get out, in my opinion, than others. So what we recommended in our filter program was that our goal is to get filters out within nine weeks. So typically we try to get them out within eight weeks if we can, but we definitely want them out within 12 weeks. And if it's after 12 weeks, then usually, you know, if it's less than everybody's different, everyone sort of has their own cutoff, you know, 20, 24, something like that. Those are usually all, a lot of them will still come out pretty easily. At least the beauty of our system at Kaiser is, is that, you know, we have over 60 interventionalists. We're combined in Northern California. I, I would imagine we're the largest interventional group in the country, but we have over 60 interventionalists, you know, and about 20 facilities. 
And so what we've done is, is that this is sort of the high, you know, we talked about low hanging fruit, mid fruit and high hanging fruit, mid fruit is the tracking of the filters. And then the high hanging fruit, which is very small population is complex filter retrievals. And so we try to funnel these into the operators who, who do this the most and who've had the most training. And so we have a handful, maybe only six or seven guys. This was started by one of my partners, Farhad Farzanigan up in South Sacramento and the programs work great. And so basically if, if you fail at a regular retrieval or you've done what you thought, you know, may have tried a loop snare or something like that and still didn't like it or didn't feel comfortable, then you can always pull out and we send the patient back up to one of these centers of excellence is what we call them. So do you have any advice for people who are doing uh, routine filter retrievals and maybe have a couple of tools in their toolbox to get into some more difficult scenarios, but at the same time, they're maybe not getting out the forceps or a laser for a filter retrieval. Is there any advice you can give to those docs? Like, just don't do this and you won't screw the next interventional radiologist. Like, you know, like you can take it this far, but once you start like, I don't know, like taking a 20 millimeter balloon and start ballooning the strut, have you seen anything where you're like, man, I really wish that IR doc wouldn't have done that. The honest truth is I think it's one of those situations where everyone has their own comfort level and everyone has their own level of training. At least at our place, I think because we have these referral centers, like I said, I think all of us have been in a, in one of these cases where something went wrong and you're like, man, this is now a headache and I really wish I didn't do that last step. And so the honest truth is you're, you're probably, if you're thinking that maybe I shouldn't do this, you probably shouldn't do it. And you should probably pull out and send it to either an academic center where you're at, or if you have a person in your group who's like, has done a lot of complex retrievals, then sort of call that guy in or just pull out and have them do it another time. Okay. It's okay to live this fight another day. I think that is one of the mantras of IR, right? <laughs> yes. All right. So we've kind of talked about it on the periphery, but one of the things I really wanted to dig into is I want to hear about the filter retrieval program that you set up and all the good, the bad, the ugly about it. Yeah, so there's different levels of complexity of how robust your program wants to be. You know, when we started it at our facility, we just started with a simple smart spreadsheet that we developed. And then we eventually sent this across the region. But I think that there's a couple key components of the filter clinic program that we set up. And, and the first one is what we talked about, which is educating other clinicians. And if something were to go wrong in your tracking system, your best eyes and ears out there is not IR. It's the people who referred them to you. And it's the primary care doctors. So if you give a grand rounds and you can talk about these filter issues and the need for follow-up, then you have, you've just recruited a bunch of eyes and ears out there to alert you that there's one of your filters out there. Right? So I think given the grand rounds is key. The second thing is that you need to have other service involved. So, you know, really reach out to critical care, really reach out to hospital based, you know, the hospitalist. The hematologist, hematologists, I'll tell you in the filter fight, they are your friends because the hematologists as a group, I think the vast majority of hematologists really don't like filters and they're very much on evidence-based medicine. They are your friends in trying to do the right thing as, as far as whether you should put them in or not. And then involving your anticoagulation clinic is key. So what we did in the, in the beginning was. We set up a system that had a safety net, which you definitely need, you know, inputting filters into a smart spreadsheet is a bit of an issue because it's outside of your workflow that requires that someone actually put it in there. And so you need some automated 
system to alert you of your monthly filter placements. And the easiest way to do that is to talk to your controller's office, have them set up a CPT based list for you that just gets spit out every month. And it's based on a filter placement code, which is three, seven, one, nine, one, three, seven, one, nine, one. <laughs> Remember three, three seven, seven, one, one nine, nine, one. <laughs> and so that number gets, you know, you just, you just want every patient that had a three, seven, one, nine, one spit out to me every month. And that's your safety net because there are a lot of people who miss stuff and I guarantee you most hospitals don't miss a billing code. And so that billing code is going to be, you know, if a filter was placed, it's going to be on that list and that you can have that list also sent to anticoagulation clinic. Right. And if you have a good relationship with them, we had anticoagulation clinic actually look at these patients and write a little blurb, you know, patients back on anticoagulation filters placed three weeks ago, patient ready for retrieval. Right. I mean, that's pretty simple. That's great. It's gold. Yeah. Hold on. But is that part of the process automated? Is that like, if they write that blurb that somehow like, does that somehow generate a referral to you guys? So the best way for that to happen is that there should be, you need a point person, right? And your the point person in IR can be typically at each facility, we have what we call an IVC filter lead. So there's one IR doc who's in charge of the filters for that facility. But a lot of places also have, we have physician extenders, you know, we have a, a PA or a nurse practitioner who may lead this initiative. They get that list and then they call up patients and get them back. It's a little different now because we started the smart spreadsheet and it worked, you know, it worked pretty well. I can tell you the numbers across the region in Northern California, which, I mean, we serve over 4 million members. Our retrieval rate was about 38%, which is also already very high. Compared to the 5% Medicare. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So 38% was very high. So when we installed this smart spreadsheet system, along with Grand Rounds across the region, and the smart spreadsheet was pretty well done. I mean, it had, it was color coded. It would tell you how long the filter's been in. It was a very nicely done smart spreadsheet that increased from 38% to 54% retrieval rates. And then the next iteration was that we actually, I worked hard to try to push this into Epic. So we put it into our EMR. It was an automated system that was based on barcoding in the filter. So at, at time of filter placement, you barcode in the filter, it's registered as an implant. And then we had what we call a reporting workbench that would show up. You could, any IR can access it. It would show all the filters that were being followed in your facility. It had an instant link that shows what anticoagulation they're on, their INR, whether they're on Lovenox. So all that, and then with a single button, you could message the patient like, Hey, it's time to come back in for your filter retrieval. And by instituting that system, because it was integrated in the MR, it was automated. We just increased our effective retrieval rate to 80%, which is to me is insane. I mean, that's like much higher than most published systems. So let's dig into that a little bit. It seems like even though you said smart spreadsheet, really automation is important. Like if you're relying on just IR docs to like put this in a Google spreadsheet or something like that, not to say that that's not more effective than not keeping track of it, but automation, I think is one of the key things with filter retrieval program. Extending your eyes and ears out into the community, whether it be Coumadin Clinic, referring docs, critical care, hospital medicine, they're the people who are going to help register an IVC filter that's been flying under the radar. And then let's dig into this Epic thing, because I mean, I think a lot of docs have Epic, and I think a lot of us realize how powerful it can be, but I find it hard to get my Epic team 
on board to build something like this. And that's what is like, I think the real challenge and the frustration is how powerful Epic can be. But, you know, sometimes it's hard to, you know, as an IR, I can't program that software. It's hard to harness that power. So how do you do it? Yeah, I think everything you just said is pretty much right on point. I would mention that building an Epic system is not a small project. I will say that the simpler system for the average IR doc out there who wants to start doing this, you're right. Automation is key. And I think the automation, the low cost automation is to have a safety net based on a procedural code. And so that would generate a list for you. And I would, I think doing it monthly is reasonable. If you do it twice a month, that's maybe even better, but someone needs to take charge of those based on that list. Now for the Epic stuff. You're absolutely right. And for those of you who haven't worked within Epic or tried to build systems in Epic and tracking systems, Epic is not, everyone's like, oh, well, I'm on Epic. You know, maybe we can just, you know, we could just use your system and our Epic system. Yeah, Steven, send us, send us your thing. Send us your thing. Just, we just email that to me. <laughs> right. So the build, the build could potentially work, but I can almost guarantee you every major healthcare system in Epic has their own build. And there's nuances within that build that are probably going to be either incompatible or need tweaking for our system to work. But, you know, if anyone's interested, I'm happy to help. I can at least show you how we built ours as far as the user interface is really, in my opinion, nicely done because everything's at your fingertips and you don't have to go look up. You don't have to go click on the patient's chart to look up stuff. It's all right there. Like, you know what anticoagulation they're on. You know, when the filter was placed, it's color coded to tell you how long the filter has been in. So we have, you know, green, yellow, and then red, and you know, once you hit 12 weeks, it turns red. So you can quickly, real quickly know where you need to be and who needs to get in touch the, you know, sooner than later. I think all that stuff is so slick. You know, a lot of times when we describe like these things with Epic and software, it's things that reduce the level of friction and even though, you know, you can look up all these things, you can look up their anticoagulation, you can look up labs, you can look up how long the filter's been in. And some people will point to that and say, just do that. But the reality is, like, if you can reduce the amount of friction to like what you guys have, I mean, you know, of course, I'm making a big leap here, but I think that's one of the reasons you can go from 55% to 80% retrieval is that it's just like... I do want, let me, let me do, mention one thing though, Chris, is that as far as that safety net goes, the safety net with that CPT code is still used even with the automated tracking, because the automated tracking still requires someone to barcode in the filter, right? So let's say, you're, you know, you're, that's typically a nurse or a tech during the procedure. Let's say they don't barcode it in, nothing's been tracked. So what the filter lead has to do is to take a look at the CPT procedural safety net list every two weeks and compare it with the reporting workbench in Epic just to make sure that it's actually on there. Okay. So a lot of power. I mean, it's almost like the 80-20 rule and that like just having the CPT code 37191 will get you pretty far. I mean, you're going to know every filter that's getting placed in your facility. Can I ask you about something else? I don't know if you've heard of this or just in comparing notes with other IBC big brains. I've heard of a couple of facilities like big facilities where they will use data mined from radiology reports like uh, it's almost like a software bot that will crawl a radiology report. And if it picks up IVC filter or filter or whatever, you can set the bot to whatever, then that can send something to like the IR department for review. And so essentially like your eyes and ears become every radiologist and every imaging exam. 
I have seen that and I have seen that used in certain applications within our system. And I think it's through our, it's also through our EMR. I think it's a very powerful tool. I think it's also a tool that requires some, forgive the pun, but filtering. You got to be able to filter what, what's, what's, what, what, what's being, what's being thrown at you. So sure. And it's also one of these things where I guess what's going to happen when you start getting hit with all these, I mean, you may, you may start getting CT reports from people who had filters placed 15 years ago or 10, you know, that, and now all those are being sent to you too. I don't, I mean, I don't know. It is a very powerful tool. I think we have used that for other applications, but not, we don't use it for this so much. Okay. And so since setting up your filter retrieval program, what do you think were the big hurdles? Like having, now that you're on the other side of it, I mean, you guys are having a lot of success. What were the big barriers to entry that if you can anticipate some of the hurdles that someone who's like setting up an IBC filter program may go through and some advice you can give them to overcoming those? I mean, on a granular level, I think, I think the CPT, there is a downside to using just the safety net and that's that the code is just for any filter. So if you are using permanent filters, which we do use permanent filters, if we know, you know, a patient has very limited lifespan, we oftentimes will just place a permanent because there's less perforation relative to the, for IBCs rather than, um, some of the conical retrievable filters. So that CPT list is a general list of anybody who gets a filter. So it doesn't knock out the permanent filters. The other growing pains, I think you mentioned it earlier. I mean, if you're doing a spreadsheet outside of the system, compliance is not great. I mean, you, you got, you got a guy who's got 12 cases to do in a day and he's running from room to room and you're expecting them to go out of the MR, go to another computer, you know, that's somehow got HIPAA security on it and then entering something into a spreadsheet, you know, and then potentially having to follow up that spreadsheet on a weekly or twice monthly basis and looking up every patient, the compliance in that isn't always great. And I think what we've seen is that the facilities that have a really strong filter lead, even with a smart sheet, almost had a hundred percent follow-up rate. So a lot of it at some point becomes that filter leads, you know, how strong your filter lead is in doing it. And do you think, do you think it's always best to have a filter lead? Like when you're referring to that as an MD? It doesn't have to be an MD. I mean, I, I think it can certainly be a physician extender or, you know, charge nurse or, or something like that. But I think there needs to be, there has to be in my mind, a physician somehow overseeing it because we talk about these patients about getting them back for retrieval and you're like, oh, it's a no brainer, but it's not always a no brainer, right? I mean, there's a lot of, sometimes they're like, well, you know, the patient's still got a DBT. They're still got some leg swelling. They're not getting around much. They are back on anticoagulation. I mean, there's all these questions and there's not always a right or wrong answer, but there's a discussion that needs to be made with the patient that probably should come from a physician who understands the risks. So let's talk about that a little bit. So let's just assume you have a fantastic tracking system like you guys have and you're seeing patients in clinic. Can you talk about that discussion that you have with patients as far as informing them on the importance of having the filter out and maybe situations where the filter should stay in, even if they are back on any coagulation? Right. I mean, every case is a little bit different. And I think the discussions we have, I think it's important when you're either putting in the filter or even taking it out is to be very upfront about the risks. And we talk about that. I'm very upfront with the patients that, you know, when we're putting filters in that they can still get a PE through the filter. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of patients have this understanding that, you know, or they're sold this understanding from the referring services that, oh, we'll put this filter in and you won't get it. You know, this will stop from any clots from going to your lungs. And that's not, that's not true. But at the same time, you know, if you, if you take a, f a filter out and someone has an active DVT, that's 
something that you should probably also have that discussion with. So every patient has a different risk tolerance level. What I try to do is to give them general description of what the risks of leaving the filter in are as well. I mean, I tell them that your risk of having a cable thrombosis at five years is, you know, 13% based on our, our long-term data, you know, and this could cause up their other issues. Fracture and embolization, I think are the, are the biggest issues. And, you know, at least the filters that we use are, we tend to use conochrome filters that don't, haven't had issues with fracture very often. And so we, that's not as big of an issue, but that's in my mind, the, the worst complication that you could have. The fracture fragment and then embolization. So how about that? So what filters do you like to place? For the most part, since I, I've been involved with filter formula, we've been using Cook Tulip or Cook Select filters for our retrievable filters. For permanent filters, we have been using the the Braun Venatech. And I think there's pluses and minuses to each filter out there. I don't think there's a perfect device. And at the same time, I, I think, you know, just from our risk benefit, that, that was our decisions we made. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, to be fair to docs putting in filters, sometimes the decision is partly in your hands and sometimes it's partly out of your hands and, you know, your facility chooses a filter sometimes based on price. So I was just curious. So final thoughts about resources that interventional radiologists or interventional cardiologists or any vascular surgeons who listen to the podcast, we, we have a broad audience, like any advice to docs who are putting in filters on resources that you can go to we mentioned the 2020 paper that JVIR came out with the consensus paper, but any other good resources that people can look to as far as either like building a filter retrieval program or up, most up-to-date guidelines, that kind of thing? Guideline-wise, I, I really recommend taking a look at that 2020 JVIR paper. You can, I think you can just uh, look under SIR. John Kaufman, I think, is the lead author. I'll make sure we link to it in our show notes. So we'll, for any of the guests, like we'll make sure we put that in there. Because I think that's sort of superseded and it, this paper, after this paper came out, you know, prior to that, there were so many, such an array of guidelines and everyone was choosing which ones they wanted to follow based on what they wanted to do. So <laughs> I, I kind of, you know, this has made my, my life a lot easier and I, and I, I agree with all the recommendations in that. As far as like the other stuff, I think that if you want to be an informed doc about filters, I think it's to your benefit to review pre-pick one and pre-pick two. So that's 1998, New England Journal of Medicine, Decusis, and 2005 circulation, and then Ms. Medi in 2015 in JAMA. So I thank you for familiar with those two papers that, that will do you a lot of good. And then if you want to look at complications, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little biased just because of our, you know, the work that we did, but I, I like the paper that we wrote in the JVS and 2017. It's just the long-term complications of IVC filters. That was one of the, it's just the long-term complications of IVC filters. Great. All right. Any final thoughts on filters? Anything that I didn't bring up that I should have brought up? I mean, I'm a pretty good host, so I doubt it, but. I think you covered it really well. I mean, I, I think. No, Stephen, you covered it really well. My only advice is just, it's easy enough for us to put these things in, but it takes a little more work to do the right thing and to follow these up and get them out. And I mean, not every filter needs to come out, but for the ones that are, that we should be doing, we should get, get them out when we can and earlier is better. And again, going back to the, the sphincter tone that we've all had on one of these horrible cases, you know, that's part of the benefit to doing this, you know, tracking them right is that you don't have that moment as often as you, as you might otherwise. And also to be fair, I mean, putting in filters, boring, taking out filters, strangely satisfying every time, easy or hard. I mean, taking out a filter feels way better than putting one in my own bias. 
To our audience, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast but want more, check out the show notes of this episode. Those can be found at backtable.com. We're going to have links to all the articles that we put down. And thank you to our team of med students who work really hard to get this stuff out. We appreciate their hard work. And remember, the show notes are where you can find the link to some free CME. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here's two really easy ways. First, take one second, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. Helps us in a lot of different ways. We love the feedback. We read every one. Steven, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Backtable Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.